Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send us your questions, you can do so at our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Also note that our webpage, in which we will have this spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen, if you're joining us on Reach Radio, maybe you want to clarify spelling, you can join us at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com is the page. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen. It'll be included in that purple bar, and you'll be sent to Cal... Or, uh, rather our uh, page where we are streaming at ccftucson.online.church. On the right-hand side of the screen, we'll have a comment section for you to send us your questions as we are live. At the bottom of the screen, you'll have a countdown clock or showcasing the fact that we are live presently, and also at the bottom of the live stream page, whatever video or time that you're joining us, we'll have our email address spelled out for you. So feel free to join us where and when you can through those venues. If you want to use social media, YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, but note that since we don't control when or why we're taken off of those platforms, our website will remain online if, of course, the reason why we are live streaming is not because of somebody's technical ineptitude. We'll make sure that you're notified otherwise, but if you don't see us live streaming on YouTube or Facebook, they can't ban us on our own platform, so feel free to join us there, calvarychristianfellowship.com. And again, under the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face. We'll be keeping an eye out for your questions as the broadcast unfolds, but note that while you're doing that, we'll also be beginning the broadcast with our apologetics topic, which we, of course, don't want to get into without proper credentials and uh, equipment. So why don't we start with a word of prayer and see where the Lord takes us? Sounds good. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be a part of this work, and knowing that it involves your word, we pray that you would be honored as a result of it. Thank you for the privilege of being able to not only minister to the select few who are listening, but ultimately to present this as another offering before your throne. We pray that it would be in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting off with our apologetics topic, there's always the band of slogans that we'll have to deal with whenever Christianity is having any meaningful impact on our lives is brought up. There should be separation of church and state, not realizing the purpose to which that slogan was lettered. It was to prove the opposite of what they insist, or the idea that, well, you're just imposing your beliefs on me, and on it goes. So I think it would be beneficial, and you did too, since this was your idea, to remind those listening, what role does the church actually play in the world at large, not just practically for the believer, but also, say, for example, in roles of politics, in roles of ethics and laws, and on it goes. Yeah, no, it's a very good question, and we might actually have to take a couple weeks because it's uh, how in-depth it is. So let me read a passage, and then we'll talk a little bit about what this passage actually means, how should we understand the boundaries, and why the Apostle Paul is saying it. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
And by the way, if you've ever read 1 Timothy chapter 3, the context is that Paul is setting up a church governmental structure. Uh, so he gives two particular roles, the role of the elder and the role of the deacon. We don't really have time to get into what exactly those roles are right now, but yeah, if you guys want, please ask questions about them, and we'd be happy to get into it. But essentially, that's what Paul's bringing up. He's bringing up the structure of the church government. So in First Corinthians 3, verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So very cool statement that the Apostle Paul makes. He gives not only a commendation for the church itself, which is very important in our day and age, which I'll explain in a second, but he also explains what the role of the church is is what we exist to do. So the first thing that he mentions, and it's very clear to us, that Paul is saying when he says that the church is the house of God, how to conduct yourself in the house of God, God, which is the church of the living God, he is giving uh, very glowing remarks regarding the church in general. Now, this is very applicable to those in the West, because many people in the West are like, well, why do I need to attend a very particular body of Christ? Can't I just have the Bible, you know, and have a relationship with God in person? Why do I need to attend some sort of a particular fellowship of God? Well, in one sense, you're right. The word church or ecclesia just means gathering. And in one sense, the second you give your life to God, you are a member of the church. <laughs> you do not have to actually attend a specific or particular body of Christ. You belong to the church of God in that moment. However, for the sake of sanctification, meaning growing in your knowledge of God, growing in your development of your spirituality, your ethics, everything like that, that all happens in the confines of the church. And this is why Paul calls it the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the pillar, pillars and grounds, they don't actually create, and we'll talk about this a little bit more because there are certain churches that read this and they're like, aha, you know, that means that we can create doctrine. Well, no, that's not what that means. What it means is that the church is there to recognize truth. The church is there to support truth. The church is there to elevate truth. It is not there to create it. We don't believe that we have the capacity to create truth. We only have the capacity to recognize it. Now, as human beings, this is just uh, the way that things work anyway. I was having a very good conversation with someone who used to be a principal at a Christian church, uh, Christian school, and he was trying to tell me how their philosophy went in implementing God in every facet of education. And so he was like, well, how do you get God into mathematics? And he had a really cool answer. He's like, well, you need to understand that we don't actually invent mathematics, we discover it, right? Math is a language that governs the universe and the cosmos, it's not something that human beings actually create. We don't invent the rules of calculus or algebra or geometry. It's something that we discover. The universe already functions off of these rules. We're just discovering what those rules are, and we're learning how to play by them in a better way. So that's a way that he implemented God into mathematics, and I thought it was really, really cool. So overall, human beings actually don't have the capacity to create truth in general. We have the capacity to recognize it. God is the truth. God establishes the universe by his divine orders and wisdom, and we recognize that order, and we seek to abide by it. The church 
is destined to do that. That's what the church is responsible for. So how does that deal with you and you're just sitting down with the scriptures and enjoying them with you and God? Well, notice Paul doesn't say that the scriptures are the pillar and ground of the truth. He makes a different response to what the scriptures and what their role is in 2 Timothy. So let me read that passage real quick and we'll compare and contrast. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you just read that passage, it kind of sounds like Scripture does cover everything. You know, if you have a Scripture, why do you need a church? But then when you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, it seems like Paul is saying that the church is a very specific role for being the pillar and the ground for the truth. So what does that mean? Uh, the easiest way I could put it is it's kind of like mathematics, right? Mathematics is a self-existing system. You don't actually need a school to teach you mathematics, but it sure does help. Right? So you have the scriptures, they can lead you into all truth, but you know what? If you've ever read through church history, there's been a lot of misinterpretation of the scripture over the years. And, and misapplication as and well. And very large misapplications as a result of people taking their cultural ideals and their philosophical ideals and bringing them into their reading of the scripture. There's no such thing as just taking someone who lives in a vacuum, who has no idea how human interactions are supposed to look, how culture is supposed to look, how truth is supposed to look, and plopping them in front of the Bible and allowing them to read out of the Bible exactly what it says. We all bring biases to the Scripture, and therefore it's very, very easy, and we all make these mistakes of reading into Scripture what our expectations are, as opposed to reading out of Scripture and allowing Scripture to challenge our expectations and move us in a different direction. Me and Sean talk about this all the time. Our favorite example of it is the apostles. How many times did Jesus tell them that he was going to die on a cross? It's like a beating drum, right? It's just all the time. I'm going to die on the cross. That's what's going to happen. But they didn't hear him. Now, is it that they didn't have the truth? No, it's that their biases towards their preconceived nature of what the truth was prevented them from hearing the clear and evident truth that Jesus, the Word made flesh, was trying to communicate. So in the same way, we all have those, and what the Church does, and what those who are in leadership are supposed to do, is we're supposed to be challenging ourselves to be emptying us of our preconceived notions and reading the Scriptures in a way that we are giving the truth, nothing but the truth, and the whole truth. So help us God. That's what we're trying to do. But we also want to educate people in biblical literacy meaning we want those listening to us to be literate enough in scriptural reading and understanding so that they can check us on our work. So they could go home, they could read the Bible passage for themselves and say, hey, you know, the way you read it, you know, I, I agree on this point and this point, but I disagree on this point, because what about this passage, and did you think of it from this way? If I hear feedback like that as a pastor, yeah, it just warms your heart. You know, this is amazing. You're like, yeah, that's awesome. It's not helpful if someone's just like, well, that sucked. You know, that's not helpful. But, you know, if you give me good biblical or scriptural reasons as to why you didn't like what I had to say, and we can have a little bit of a dialogue, that's amazing because that means that the church that they're attending, the local church that they're attending, is doing its job. It is holding up the truth and presenting it to people in a way that they can access it and be changed and moved by it. Now, Moving into this idea of Catholicism and orthodoxy and things like that, before we get into that 
Anything you'd like to add to? No, just emphasizing the point, like any math teacher's goal isn't to invent mathematical equations for their students, but to properly explain and guide them through application in their own lives so they are trained in that discipline. The same is true for life and godliness. We're not here to invent new forms of theology. If anything else, the more apt teacher is the one who keeps going back to the basics because it's those things that we grow by. Right, absolutely. So... I totally get the appeal of this, but there are various churches throughout Western civilization and Eastern civilization that have sought to make the church a little bit more than that. They've said, you know, we're not just here to be a pillar and grounding for the truth. We're here to actually build on the truth. We're here to actually establish the truth in a way that it previously wasn't. So because of that, we have the capacity to effectively and definitively interpret Scripture. So you could totally understand the appeal of that. You know, it wouldn't it be great if we just had one understanding of all Scripture and there was no debate? It's just this is the way you have to read it, and there is no room for error. There is no room for other interpretations. That is it. Sounds very appealing. However, you better hope that whatever, uh, whatever faculty that you're putting that ultimate trust in is worthy of that trust, because what you're giving them the authority to do is you're giving them the authority to speak on behalf of God. You are saying, I recognize your interpretation of Scripture as superseding any other interpretation of Scripture, which means that in in a way, and kind of clearly, they have more authority than Scripture. Right? <laughs> they have more authority than Scripture. They are not the pillar and ground of the truth. They are more than that. So I get the appeal. It makes a lot of sense. But you have to remember the reason why God gave us Scripture in the way that He did is He intends for us to use our reasoning capacities to be able to garner truth from it. So God created us with intellect and logic and reason, and He really and genuinely believes that we can figure that out as we study His Word and as we seek truth in humility. And that's actually a really good thing that you see in Acts chapter 15. So in Acts 15, there is a disagreement in interpreting Scripture that happens in the early church. So you have one group of the uh, church leadership saying the Gentiles who convert need to be circumcised, right? Circumcision was given to Moses as a sign for him being set apart by God. Obviously, this, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham, Abraham. uh, is a sign that he is set apart to God. People are coming to God. They're Gentiles. They're uncircumcised. God said that it's an eternal covenant, right? It's an eternal sign of the covenant. So obviously, they have to be circumcised. But then Paul and some others said, "Wait, wait, wait. If they have to be circumcised in order to enter into the people of God, doesn't that mean that there is a work that brings you into the work of God as opposed to just faith? And there was this huge debate. There was this dust up. Now, God could have easily settled it, right? The Holy Spirit could have showed up and been like, Paul is right. (laughs) Paul is correct. Shut up, everybody else. He could have done that. But instead, what you see is you see the church reasoning together. You see him dialoguing, looking through the scriptures, and coming to just and logical conclusions together. That's what happened in the early church. They weren't establishing some sort of a new truth. You don't see any of the apostles stand up and be like, aha, I have a divine interpretation of scripture. No, they just bring up what the scriptures say, and they argue out of the Bible in order to establish their points. So very, very important. And again, uh, Catholicism is something that me and Sean have talked about a lot. But let's move into a more controversial issue. Okay, so the church is there to establish the truth of Scripture. Does that mean that the church has to stop when theology stops? So when 
we're talking about issues that don't concern God's nature, things like that, eschatology, study of the end times, or God's theology, the study of his being, things like that. If those topics aren't on the docket, does that mean the church has to be silent? Does that mean the church can't communicate about things, let's say, political issues, let's say abortion, or transgender issues, or homosexual issues, or the uh, idea of traditional marriage? Does the church have to remain silent on those things because it goes above our pay grade? What do you think about that, Sean? Well, I guess you would have to clarify the setting and, of course, the appropriateness of how it's being applied, because if you have a Christian coming forward with a poor handling of Scripture, hopefully they're more willing to challenge each other in their own environment before they export it. But the same is true in, say, for example, the setting of the first century Roman Empire. Not a lot of uh, political activism, but there was one-on-one evangelism. They sought to persuade individuals rather than a government that was seeking their heads. So that is obviously something to consider, not because of proper application, but just wise execution. That, of course, then being said, when we're in a country, the United States and parts of Europe in particular, where Christians do have a voice, who do have at least some respected moral values, it's basically understanding the circle of influence that 1 Corinthians 5 gives us and noting that I'm not to judge those who are on the outside, but those who are on the inside. In a legal system that recognizes Judeo-Christian principles, but obviously doesn't uphold them as the qualifier for American citizenship. We can obviously hold people to that level of consistency and say, you recognize and agree with us that this is law, why are you not upholding it equally? And in the same way, when it's talking about the issues of interpreting the law and the courts and so forth, we can speak to those who are upholding laws we agree with and say, we share that law, this is how we handle it, are you going to properly represent us? Now, if you go to European nations where it's kind of respected history, but not necessarily a representative form of government, you, of course, have to take further steps, but it's essentially repeating the same point. If someone claims to share your values, then you have every right, and those are given, not implied, uh, every right to approach your representatives, your leaders, and say, this is how I uphold those values. Will you you represent me on this, and if not, are you willing to dialogue about it? That's why they have public forums, even in Europe and even among the monarchies. Right. Then we get into anti-Christian governments, like socialist governments and Sharia-dominated governments, those who are in opposition to Christian values, but ironically enough, still in part hold to some bare-bones foundations, that the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is the role of every government, whether they put it in those words or not. And interestingly enough, even in Sharia-dominated nations, it depends on those who are in power, but there have been people throughout history who have hold upheld parts of the Quran that favored them and their own sensibilities. We can talk about, uh, um, I forget the title he claimed for himself, but the uh, individual's name was Akbar, and he uh, hold rulership over a province in India. And interestingly enough, he was one of the more benevolent rulers in Muslim history because he didn't really care about the Quran. Mm. He was accused of being an apostate by his son, but the point being made is this. 
and killed him, by the way. Mm. But the point being made is this. When we're talking to or about any form of legal representation, you seek for areas of agreement. And that's where every conversation, or at least productive ones, will begin. Obviously, there's room for persuasion that you get people to agree with you, but that's what we would call evangelism, the one-on-one approach. If, on the other hand, it goes to those who claim to be supporting you, and my father has had conversations with our governor, Doug Ducey, here in Arizona, we can talk about our local representatives and how we reflect that in our votes or write letters to our representatives. But this is, again, that key issue of setting and of application. Am I wise in that? In the United States, I'm a little bit more free than I would be in Mexico or in Canada or in Europe. But if, on the other hand, I am in those locations, I'm not without freedoms. Mm -hmm. And even in a place where freedoms are restricted, that's where I measure those two. Can I persuade through evangelism, individuals or authorities? And if not, can I seek agreement on the issues that we do agree on? Of course, Islam upholds the life of the unborn. Muhammad stood against infanticide in Saudi Arabia. We can be (laughs) arm-in-arm on that. It disagrees with hedonism being imposed or enforced on the public, and while it does impose and enforce other non-Christian ideas, we could at least agree on that. That's where the transgender issues and abortion issues would come in, find common ground. Mm. But if, on the other hand, they don't call themselves Christians, they can at least call them fellow pro-life or fellow fill-in-the-blank. So that would be how I would say upholding a pillar is meant to hold up the roof, right? A truth and a grounding of truth is being a source of stability. You know where I stand, and I'm going to stand for it. Mm -hmm. You know how I stand, and if you want to stand on it, then enjoy the security. But it's also important as well that if a church is going to be active and vocal, they at least take the time to make sure they've crossed their T's and dot their I's, because we can name a few, we won't, but we could name a few where they've kind of jump the gun and saying, yeah, you don't speak for us. And of course, that is not just in regards to obscure political opinions, but also aberrant presentations of scripture, things in support of these issues. So that would be how I'd handle that. Awesome. Yeah, no, well said. I I would just... uh just to clarify a couple things and giving some ways that Christians, I think, have succeeded in fulfilling what you're describing and some ways that they've kind of failed. So um, in the past, let's say, let's take the Puritan movement as an example. So the, the Puritan and the separatist movements within the uh, Protestant churches that happened around the time of the founding of America, what you had is this idea of we're going to separate ourselves from the world and we're going to be a city on a hill, man. We're going to be this perfect culture, this perfect unity that people are going to look at and they're going to want to come and live like us. So noble ambitions for sure. Not an but, original one either. Right. Not, not, uh, yeah, absolutely not original at all. But because of that, it caused them to separate themselves from the world politics. So they actually weren't interacting with their culture at all. And their movement ended up kind of petering out, you know, it ended up kind of stifling itself because no one actually wanted to go live with these people because they just seemed very pretentious and they didn't actually give an open door. They weren't like, hey, come on in. We'll tell you about Jesus. It's convert to our way of culture and then we'll tell you about Jesus. So it was which very was, like... Which was history repeating itself. The same thing happened with the Essenes during the time before Jesus. So Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely history repeating itself. And, and again, good, good point. You have to remember, Paul is coming from a time in history when he's writing this that is very applicable to us as Christians. So the Jews originally had their own country, but Paul is communicating at a time where they didn't. 
Israel was not a sovereign nation at the time that Paul's communicating, and Paul himself was a Jew that was born outside of Israel. He was born in Tarsus. So you have a guy who definitely does uh, subscribe to the orthodoxy of Judaism as well as believe in the nation of Israel, but was living outside of it. Why? Because the Jews were dispersed. And that is the situation that Christians are in right now. We don't actually have a nation. There is no Christian nation that we can go to. Uh, we will one day when we die, but you know, like there is no actual Christian nation that we can fly to in an airplane. So what that means is that we are light and salt to the world. We are here to live in the diaspora, the dispersion. You know, we are in this exiled state where we're not actually home yet, but we have the capacity to seek the good of the lands that we're in. This is what God told the exiled Jews in the book of Jeremiah. He's like, hey, you're not going to be in Israel, but seek the good of the land that you're going to. And that's why you see Jews having massive influence on the cultures that they went to. And it's also how they're able to hold on to their cultural identity. They're the only people group that have been without a homeland, that were without a homeland for over a thousand years, and maintain their cultural and religious ideologies, and were able to come back in and reestablish their land. It's because they held on to their cultural ideas. They did not allow themselves to become dissolved and assimilated by whatever culture they were in, but they were salt and light to whatever culture they went to which made a lot of cultures upset, by the way. Right? A lot of cultures didn't like the idea that the Jews weren't converting to their way of doing things, and so they persecuted them and tried to kill them. But you say the same thing about Christians, right? The Christians that are refusing to be assimilated into the cultures that they're in will take a lot of flack and they'll take a lot of heat. So be careful. We as Christians are not to go away from the world, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He's like, I'm not saying to get away from the world, because then, I mean, to totally distance yourself from anyone who practices these things, because then you'd have to go out of the world, and your purpose of being an evangelist would be nullified. You need to stay in the world, but you can't become of the world. You can't actually assimilate into their ways of doing things. So the Church exists, to put it very simply, the Church exists to almost be its own separate counterculture slash political system that exists outside of the systems of the state. And therefore, the Church has governmental authority over those who are in it, and they have the capacity to institute cultural ideals. However, they then encourage the people in the Church to leave the confines of the Church and be salt and light to their world. That means they're taking the ideas that they're gaining from their culture and Church, and they're trying their best to implement them in the world as a whole. Why? Because we as Christians believe we have true ideas. And when you have true ideas, if the world were to follow them, the world would be a better place. So, And even when the world doesn't follow them, it catches up with them really quick, because as Greg Kokel was said uh, once in his debate with, uh, I believe it was, uh, I'll forget his name in a moment, but uh, an individual who was very much a relativist, uh, Chopra, Deepak Chopra, that was his name, uh, he said, reality is the thing that we run into when we don't take it seriously. <laughs> and if that is in fact the case, then a Christian does his neighbor a favor by pointing out, you know, you got no clothes on, Mr. Emperor. I don't care how much you brag about it. Or those kids are, in fact, being harmed by this behavior. Right. We ought to go a different direction. Right. And they can put bumper stickers on. They can revile you. They can spit on you. They can even throw stuff at you, speaking from will. experience. Yeah. <laughs> but the point being made is that we will let the true standard fall, and that is the point of a pillar, to make sure it keeps standing. Absolutely. So I uh, hope it gives you guys a good uh, clarification of the purpose of the Church, especially in these days. Maybe next week we talk a little 
little bit more about our incentives for joining the church and how we can grow inside of it, but um, absolutely hope that helps out. All right, going out to our questions, first one from Isaiah, who wants to know, uh, this is in regards to the New Jerusalem, so Revelation 21, for those of you following along at home, uh, wonders why there are walls outside of the New Jerusalem, and they heard from the Bible study that cowards are outside the walls. What does the Bible say? And then he also wants uh, understanding of what constitutes a coward in that passage. So anyone who has propensity towards fear is unworthy of the kingdom of God, obviously not. But let's go to the passage itself, and of course, let's make sure that when we're talking about these issues, it's actually in the text itself. Obviously, there are interesting open doors for them as far as the gates, as far as the walls and the materials they're in, but let's, I guess, start in verse 22, and we'll backtrack a little bit when it regards those who are outside the city. It says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, Isaiah, that's going to be key in understanding what is the purpose of this description. There's the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved, again, put that in your backtrack because it will be important later, shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it, and its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And also note, there's no night, so they're just open always. But here's the point. They shall, note this, bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So there's not a mono-homogenous culture here. God made different cultures, ethnicities. He's kind of keen on the idea. They're welcome in the kingdom. But then in verse 27, as we note, there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those, notice this theme is being repeated, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the what's of what are excluded are those things that deviate from God's nature. Those that enter into it and are always welcome, the gates are always open, are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We would, for the sake of time, feel free to ask in a follow-up, but say this is synonymous with salvation, that you have accepted Jesus' gift of redemption and forgiveness. Now, when we go into passages both before and after this, it notes, no one shall enter into it, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, all liars and adulterers shall not be written in the book of life, but shall be cast alive into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the, I guess, piecemeal assembly of these pictures and points, one that Jesus makes in post point, and one that's being made in the passage itself, are talking about this new Jerusalem as if it's, say, the only safe place in the middle of hell, <laughs> and they would say all oh, the people who are outside the city gates is the existence of hell, but those who are inside the city gates is the existence of heaven. That doesn't jibe. <laughs> so let's take a step back and ask in the new creation, this whole new universe <laughs> that we'll be enjoying. What is its key and fundamental feature with Jesus? Second hmm. Corinthians chapter 5, what does it note? Verses 6 through 7, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So those who are with Jesus are in this state that we call heaven, or as Paul mentioned, again, same book, Second Corinthians chapter 12, the third heaven, the third use of that term, where God directly manifests his glory. That's now the new Jerusalem. That's where he'll be with his people, where he'll be providing them not just 
company, but literally light. Those who are with him are in this new city. Now, it obviously is describing its physical boundaries and materials in some very beautiful ways in the verses that go before verse 22, but note that these points of emphasis and physical dimensions aren't the limits of what constitutes the new heaven and the new earth. This is just one part of it. What makes it paradise is that God is there. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. What makes you worthy to be there is your name is written in the book of life. The nations who are saved. The points repeated over and over again. So then let me know if that helps, and I'm just badgering the point. You're with Jesus. You're in heaven. That's the point. But what about the cowardly? In this passage, when Jesus follows through on it, those who won't enter into the city, it includes cowards. Hmm. What is the emphasis and point if salvation is by grace through faith? How would fear prevent you from salvation? Yeah, so there's a couple ways I can answer this. The first one would be to say that there are various lists in the Bible that describe people who won't make it to heaven. Uh, the first Corinthians 6 has a very clear one, but Revelation chapter 22 also has one. So um, basically when you read the passage, so let's just read it. That makes it easier. <laughs> Revelation chapter 22, uh, verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever practices a lie. So there's this list there, and then there's also another list that mentions cowards in uh, 21. In 21. What you see in these passages is you see this distinction between those who are saved and those who aren't saved. So if I were to take this very literally and say, oh, okay, so anyone who does any of these things is not saved, that would be a very interesting interpretation, right? And again, you'd have to have a similar one in 1 Corinthians 6, which is even a, a stricter list, right? If you could read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse uh, 9, and not see yourself in that list, you're not looking hard enough. You're in it. <laughs> Idolaters are mentioned first. Anyone here have a higher priority in their life than God? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Bummer. Yeah. And in this one, you, you have uh, dogs, sorcerers, uh, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters. And remember, when Jesus talked about sexual immorality, anyone who looks after a woman lustfully, you've already done it. Anyone who looks at their brother and calls him an idiot, you've committed murder. So and dogs, I mean, that's obviously not a reference to the canine genus. It's yeah. something ceremonially unclean or unfit to enter into the worship of God. Exactly. So again, we're all on these lists, absolutely. The idea here, and in these lists particularly, is it's showing that without grace, none of us make it in. So if we're not written in the Book of Life, as Sean already said, then we're not going to make it in. But we actually do get a instruction, not only in this chapter, but in various other chapters, is how do we overcome the fact that we're doing these things? Well, it's to all who are thirsty. That's what Jesus says. Anyone who is thirsty, come, and you will drink from the river of life. So in other words, if you recognize your lack before God, and you seek your sufficiency in Him, and that means a sufficiency when it comes to righteousness, that you realize that I am not right before God, and I need a Savior, that would get you in, that would get you forgiven, as well as a lack in general. Like, I know that I don't have what I need inside this world. I know that all I need is only found in God. God, I want to meet you. I want to come near to you. I want to do everything I can to have a relationship with you. That kind of a person who seeks, Jesus said it, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for you will be filled. So that's the idea that we're getting from these passages, not necessarily that these individual sins 
are going to prevent you from knowing God. I think in a macro way they do, right? The fact that we sin means that we're partakers in Adam's fall, and therefore we are separate from God. But we do need to be able to be saved, and the capacity for salvation doesn't mean that we're going to all of a sudden be free of these issues and these uh, follies, but it does mean that we will be forgiven for them, and that's the more important thing. Now, when it comes to cowardice, I think it's really interesting that he uses that word in particular, because if you've been reading through the book of Revelation, right, you don't just start in chapter 21, but you're like, I'm going to start in chapter 1. I'm going to do something kooky, and you know, I'm going to read the whole book. Maybe uh, when you get to the last book of the Bible, you make yeah. sure you read the first 65, too, yeah. but that's another <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, get to the end of the Bible and be like, hmm, maybe I should go to Genesis. Maybe that, that, that'll help me understand this big, long book at the end here. But at any rate, uh, when you're reading through the book of Revelation, you realize that a lot of crazy stuff is happening in the book. And in order to convert, this is true no matter what time you live in, in order to convert to God, fear is a relevant factor in preventing people from coming to Christianity, especially in the book of Revelation, right? So the fear of martyrdom, the fear of losing large amounts of wealth, resources, and life for the sake of coming after God is a relevant fear, and it is a reason that will prevent many people from confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There are many people today who will not convert due to fear. There are other motives. There are other reasons why people don't. Again, when you read through the list, you realize, are all these motives? Yeah. Are there people who don't convert to Christianity because of sexual immorality? You better believe it, right? Aldous Those Huxley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Aldous Huxley was pretty blatant. He's like, yep, that's why I left Christianity. I didn't like the fact that it told me I couldn't do these things sexually, right? So are there people who are going to do it for that reason? Yep. Are there people who are murderous that won't do it? Yep. Uh, because if we are forgiven, Jesus makes it really clear. If you're forgiven, you got to forgive others. And some people don't like that. They're like, no, nah, I kind of want to hold on to my grudges. I don't like the idea that Jesus forgives everybody, right? That will prevent people. How about idolaters? Yep. There are people who are like, I don't really want to put God at the top. I like having these other things on the top of my life. I don't actually want to put God on the top. So once again, this is to distinguish from the person who has come to God, but struggles with these issues, as opposed to the person who has these issues and therefore won't come to God. So I hope that helps. Yeah, and again, just to backtrack in case the point was missed, the significance of walls is moot because the gates are always open. Right. <laughs> Let me just make sure that point's being made. Mm-hmm. It's describing glory in the same way that any city would be understood. But if the gates are always open, the walls are useless as far as military defense. But God's in the city. I think if there was that problem, it could get resolved very quickly. Yeah, and by the way, the, the, the pearl gates yeah. are really important to understanding the metaphors present here. Um, so people hear the pearly gates. It's actually not the pearly gates. It's a, it's a pearl gate. It's yeah, a, it's a pearl. <laughs> that's right. It's a giant pearl that is open and allows us entrance into it. Uh, you, you want to talk about that a little bit, the significance of it? Well, there's a few angles, but the one that I think I relate to the most as a G-grade Gentile is the fact that those were not things that Jews found valuable or particular. They were the things that people who were seafarers would find interesting because you find those things generally on the coastlands and the sea. People of Israel didn't touch the water. That was for the other nations. That was for the other people especially since the Philistines and the Sidonians dominated those regions and they didn't uh, have good relationships with them. And that wasn't their fault, by the way. shellfish wasn't exactly kosher. Yeah, so they were (laughs) supposed to stay away from those things. Now, obviously, when you see pearls being mentioned, it's a reference to 
Gentiles. It's that sort of commodity, that sort of thing that would be found valuable in other nations, but not in the Jewish people's nation. So when there's that picture of the nations, and again, there's plenty of passages we'll get to when we're studying it, and we have the notes in front of me right now, but that's the point in reference for quotation. A lot of the uh, major prophets use this picture of a pearl to reference the treasure of the Gentile nations. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not going to come to me right away, but that would be the symbol. Absolutely. And then even in Jesus' parable of the Pearl of Great Price, right? Same kind of picture there of uh, his ministry to the Gentile nations and bringing them into the kingdom. So. Which they did not like. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like that parable. <laughs> All right. So uh, let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah. Thank you for starting this off. But again, just to recap, the significance of the walls moot because the gates are always open. The significance of cowardice, it said three times in the description, those who enter into it are those who've received salvation. So those characteristics that would keep those out were those who kept themselves from those gates. Uh, that would be the answer. A question from Yari, who wants to know, uh, how is justice going to work in the Millennial Kingdom? Obviously, in the passages that we're told about it, we're given details as far as the impact of nature that Christ's return will have and his reign in Isaiah chapter 11. We'll have a description of his name <laughs> in the book of Jeremiah, yeah. uh, the Lord our righteousness as opposed to the Lord our Savior. And of course, we're given descriptions of its kind of political structure in Revelation chapter 20, but that's about it. If we're talking about the significance therein of how it's going to be enforced, it's tricky because we're not told a lot. But if, on the other hand, we were to note who's in charge, whose law will be upheld, he'll strike nations afar off with the sword that is in his mouth, and a reference to the Psalms and all that. It's interesting to note how these things would be enforced, but it's an entirely in a speculative context. Now, the speculation can be enforced Formed, but it's still not a conclusion. We'll have to see it when we see it. But the point being made is this. As far as the passages that we're told about justice being enforced, there are two. And that, of course, was the one I mentioned briefly in Psalms. He'll strike nations afar off with the word of his mouth, so not something will enforce, but he will directly enforce. Right. And the second is in the book of Isaiah, where it notes that during the time of, in the latter days, the future kingdom, that Egypt is going to refuse to go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles during this time, and God will withhold rain from them. Now, there won't be like this, you know, God conduit of his representatives who will specifically create like this anti-moisture barrier around it. God created the universe in a word. He can just say no rain. He did it with Elijah, and that point was being made, I think, fairly clearly. But the idea behind that is this. If anyone's going to be the judge, it will be the judge of all the earth who will literally be there. As far as the authority and organization, though, that will be delegated to us, not because he needs us, but because there will be a reward being had for faithfulness there. To the extent or the limit of how that applies to one of us or all of us, again, those who are given thrones are those who are beheaded for their testimony during the tribulation. As far as what goes beyond that, don't know. Don't... Uh, actually care. I'll find out when I'm there. That would be the answer. Any more details? That's good. Yeah. All right. A uh, question sent along to us by email. This is from John, who wants to know what you think about the Septuagint and other source texts and how they compare. So as far as source text for those listening, this is the Septuagint or the 70, that's uh, LXX for those keeping track at home. Um, that's a Greek translation of the Old Testament around 200 years before Christ, uh, commissioned by the uh, 
reign of Ptolemy, I think it was, to his credit. There's the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was found more recently. That was written by the Essenes, Jews who lived again many centuries before the time of Jesus. We could note the Masoretic text, which is more recent, but not too recent, around 900 AD. So we got 1,100 years gap between these two, and on it goes. That's for the Old Testament. For New Testament, it's a lot simpler. We have Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrius as far as complete copies, and then, of course, we have piecemeal fragments that we note the existence of the Bible long before these, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, around the 3rd to 4th century. So when we're talking about source texts, obviously, we compare them to what we're reading today. Not too much different, which is amazing. But if, on the other hand, we were to say some are better than others, uh, what would be our concerns and, I guess, uh, I guess, thumbs up as far as what they have going for them and what they lack? Yeah, so uh, Septuagint in general is uh, a very good translation. We obviously see the apostles quoting from it. Uh, the reason why is because Greek was kind of the English of its day. It was the language that virtually everyone spoke. That's why the New Testament was largely written in Greek, Koine Greek, because that's what the majority of people spoke. So why not write in the language that most people would be able to read? In the same way, the Septuagint would have been the one that was most widely available. There was also the Targum, which was an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament that was available, but that wasn't a word-for-word translation. It was more or less like a commentary. Uh, so it was, it was cool, but it wasn't like a word-for-word translation. And a lot of the Jews did not speak Hebrew at that point, because like I said, they were dispersed for many centuries. And so a lot of them had lost the language, unfortunately. So when you look at Jesus's disciples, some of them did not speak Hebrew. They weren't. They didn't have the capacity to go back and read the Hebrew scriptures, but they were able to read the Greek Greek scriptures because that was a language they were familiar with, and that helped them understand the Bible. Now, because it's a translation, it's a good translation, but it's still a translation. If I really wanted to understand the original text, I would probably go to the Hebrew translations, which we have, like you said, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that. So it, it does help. I believe people who are translating your Old Testament to go back and to compare some of the ways that the Septuagint translators rendered various texts, I think that kind of helps them because they are giving a little bit of commentary because sometimes there aren't direct word-for-word translations. The Hebrew language is actually very broad, if you want to put it that way. It's actually a very broad language, and the way that you interpret things and the way that you even put vowel pointings is sometimes complicated. So the way that the Septuagint translators moved it to the Greek, which is a more Western language, and therefore it's a little bit more clear-cut, it's, it is actually very illuminating for them. They're like, wow, you know, they, they put it this way as opposed to that way. It really helps them out. So they use it as a reference point, but the more direct translation, they're going to focus more on the actual Hebrew because that's the one that God inspired it within. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's very very cool. If you speak Koine Greek, you know, go for it. Read the read the Septuagint. Might be very cool for you to do. But otherwise, these texts that we're talking about basically only have relevance because of the translation of your English Bible, uh, unless you speak the relevant languages. They don't really matter for the sense of studying because you won't be able to understand what's being written in them. But for the translators, it's very important. And if you read the textual uh, textual criticisms of your Bible, some of them actually have it. Like my Bible has annotations in it saying where there are some variants and where certain texts disagree. That's because 
the translators for my Bible, as well as many, uh, many common Bibles, many uh, Bibles that are in circulation right now, they are not, it's not like they just have one thing. It's not like they're like, okay, here's the Septuagint, let's just do a word-for-word translation from that, or here's the Dead Sea Scrolls, let's do a word-for-word from that. It's, let's compile what we have, we compare and contrast, and try to put out the best plausible interpretation for these scriptures in the English. That's what they do. So they compile a lot, and oftentimes they're going off of over a hundred manuscripts, trying to get you the best possible translation. So I love it. I love the fact that we have all these different translations of the text. I love the fact that we have not only the Greek New Testament manuscripts, but we have the Syriac, we have the Latin. It does help the translators today compare and contrast and get us as close as physically possible to the original as we can. Yeah, and then if we take comparisons, say, for instance, the Texas Receptus, compiled mm-hmm. not by Christians, by the way, but yeah. just whatever Greek text was available. This is before the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything else that would include. Noting the New Testament, they gathered together all of the question passages and these comparisons with the material they had. They found around one half of one page of text as far as legitimate issues. And we can give an example in the Old Testament where it notes in one of Jeremiah's later prophecies, like the 50-plus chapters, it's just outright makes a mistake with the accounting of one of the names of the kings. Now, I'm sure you're all fainting in your couches right now and saying, oh no, they said Zedekiah instead of Koinai, whatever shall we do? No, the chapter then goes on to repeat the name of the actual king two times. The reason why it was still included, and is still included in most of our translations today, is because they were faithfully copying what they had. Absolutely. But the and, that, news, and that's an important point, real quick, before you finish yours. Um, You have to remember, when we say the Bible is inspired, what we mean is that the original manuscripts were inspired. The copies are not inspired, and therefore they are open to mistakes. So when we say things like variants, don't freak out. That is something that happens in the copying process. Some people make mistakes when they're copying text. I could write, sometimes I'll write emails and I'll quote Bible passages, and you know what? I'll make mistakes. I'm not, I'm not, that's why I need an editor for the books I write, is because I'm not the best grammatically in, in keeping through things. i got to spell check a lot of my work. So anyway, yeah, any copy that we make is going to be open and liable to mistakes, and we have them. The good news is, is that if you have enough, if you have a preponderance of evidence, you can compare the variants and the mistakes, and like I said, get back to the original, which is where it is inerrant. And that's why we have so many copies, because with an abundance of variants, you could know where and when and how mistakes were made. And being able to spot those also means if you note a mistake, what's the correct? And that's very easy. Most of the time, you can just keep reading in the chapter. Other times, you can compare it to other information in the chapters. Other times as well, you can just note, well, let's imagine a world where that passage wasn't in the Bible. Not much changed. That's, of course, in reference to John uh, 5-4, I think, Mm -hmm. where it notes the angel stirring the water. There's earlier copies that just don't have that passage. Some people theorize that it was a commentary written, and they mistook it for a verse. Now note, that's one verse amongst many thousands in the New <laughs> Testament, and that's a rarity. We right. all could mention the one in First John chapter 5, where it notes in a reiteration of a point, reiteration of a point, that was already made in the previous verse, and right. it's emphasizing that. You could say, well, we have earlier evidence that that wasn't in there, but maybe it was just missing or a result of weather damage. Others that it was a commentary, others that it's just you know, (laughs) was in there, and we just don't have early evidence. All are possible. But note, if we remove every question passage from the Bible, we're really careful. We lose nothing as far as the doctrines of Christianity. If, on the other hand, we leave them in, 
nothing's changed yeah. doctrinally <laughs> or biblically. And yeah. of course, if we note, but how do you know that the entire Bible isn't just one big conglomeration of errors like Bart Ehrman and his disciples insist? Well, that's an inference from a lack of evidence, not a result of actual manuscripts. Bart Ehrman only says that in front of college students. When he's talking to scholars, he's a little he more careful. <laughs> he's a little more careful with his language because he knows it's not true. So, yeah. so <laughs> let us know if that helps you out, John. Thank you for the question. We got a question uh, from Jeannie, who is speaking to uh, not Christian, but Jewish audiences, who uh, made the point of emphasis that, and I quote, uh, the scriptures are only speaking of God's covenant with a particular piece of land. And what is the significance of that point of emphasis? Uh, the answer to that, Genie, is kind of complicated, because if you're talking to someone about a particular passage and they bring that up, it could be correct if they're referencing a specific passage. The problem is that if you're talking to a secular Jew, an Orthodox Jew, or a Messianic Jew, you can have a variety of different motives as to how and how far and wide, I guess, that point would bring influence over. If you're talking to a secular Jew, so someone whose only affiliation with Judaism is by family, they don't observe Sabbath, they don't observe kosher laws, they don't care about the ceremonies, it's just kind of family history. It's like me and Norse mythology. That's, that happened. That's about as relevant as it is to me. Well, they would use that point of application in order to dismiss the idea of this having any influence over us today. This was in reference to that time at that place. Don't get all prophetic about it. It would be to dismiss relevance of the Bible. Now, if you're talking to Orthodox Jews, this usually comes up not in regards to every passage, but particular passages they don't like the implications of. So notice the common theme. If an Orthodox Jew says, well, that's just referring to Israel's relationship with their covenant and, and the land and the blessings therein. You, you got to go back to Deuteronomy, man, always about the Deuteronomy. And I go, yeah, Deuteronomy 7, right? Dang it. But the point being made is this. They would use it to diminish the significance or the possibility of there being prophecies that are referred to or fulfilled in Jesus. They would narrow the context, excuse me, narrow the context not to emphasize there could be a second um, application, a dual fulfillment, we sometimes call it. So again, secular Jews would say, this doesn't have any influence on me. And Orthodox Jew, when they're bringing that up, are usually referring to that doesn't have relevance to Jesus. It's just on the land. However, there is a proper application of that point, and this is with the Messianic Jews. Now, again, I'm sure there are rational Orthodox Jews out there, too, but the point being made is this. If you bring up a passage, and they have regard for their scripture to a point where they don't want to impose on it more context than what's due, they'll say, yeah, but I think that was just in reference to that historical historically. It would be an emphasis on the immediate historical context and being careful, just like we would be, in saying, oh, this is a prophecy of Messiah. You know, you flip to a random page here, Jeremiah 34, and say, okay, when it says in verse 4, I, I literally just picked a random passage, hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah, thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Now, I could then stand up and say, this is a dual prophecy of Messiah, 
and how all the tribes of the earth will mourn and weep for him, just like they would not mourn for Zedek. And you can already tell, I'm just making this up out of my hat. They would say, now that was in reference to Zedekiah and particularly how he would not die physically, but he would have a hard time at it in his transition to Babylon. That is the historical context, and it shouldn't go any further than that unless we have New Testament data that would affirm that, either through quotation or through application. Excuse me, application. If, on the other hand, uh, someone is just saying, no, I don't think that that's appropriate, well, that's fine, but make sure that when you're talking to them, you can say if it is appropriate, if we can find reference or sound handling of the text that would verify that, then we can get somewhere. But when you bring up that point, this only applies to God's covenant with the land. Well, that's narrowing the possibility of truth, which is, again, sometimes warranted. But you don't say that on principle. You ask the question, why is it that there isn't a broader interpretation? Are you trying to avoid information? Are you trying to avoid application? Or are you trying to, trying to avoid misinterpretation? One of those is a good handling of Scripture, the other or not. Yeah. Uh, anything more before we have to sign up for the last question? Uh, yeah, let's go to the last question. All right, uh, here's our contradiction for the day, and this one I think is, uh, in reference to Jeremiah, very perturbing to me. The first contradiction is regarding how was Zedekiah related to Nebuchadnezzar. In 2 Kings 24, 17, apparently Nebuchadnezzar was his uncle, whereas in 2 Chronicles 36, 10, apparently Nebuchadnezzar was his brother. Now, are either of those claims accurate? Nope. No. No. <laughs> well, let's go to the text, call the bluff. That's the first step in dealing with any contradiction. And again, in 2 Kings, let me make sure I have the proper reference. In verse 17, it says, The king of Babylon made Mataniah Jehoiachin's uncle, king not, in his place, not Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> and changed his name to Zedekiah. We then go to 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 10, and it notes, At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him, this is in reference to Jehoiachin, and took him to Babylon with costly articles from the house of the Lord. He made Zedekiah Jehoiakim's brother, not Nebuchadnezzar, king of Jerusalem and Judah. Point being made is this. This is actually, unfortunately, a very common form of a contradiction where they're counting on you not to go to the text. This is fine if you're an atheist who doesn't care about what the Bible says, you just want affirmation of your prejudices, but when it comes to a contradiction in the Bible, what's the first and most important thing to do? Call their bluff. Where and when? Show me. Let's read the passages, because neither of them say anything remotely close to what they asserted it was. So with that said, the music is coming on, so we'll be signing off for today. Thank you all for your questions and participation. I hope this has been edifying for you. Feel free to leave your questions in the email box as well as wherever else you can get them to us. And until then, we'll see you next time. This has been Sean Richards and Peter Martin on A Reason for Hope. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.